listening to my voice, making noises, talking to you. La la la. La 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 la. I'm Ryan Wozniak. I'm David Crumb. And we're here to talk about... Happy City by Charles Montgomery, Chapter 5, Getting It Wrong. Getting it wrong. And so, the story begins with some metaphors. And mind you, as soon as the novelty is over, and the force of the contrast dulled, it ain't happiness any longer. You've got to get up something fresh. Mark Twain. I think that was a pretty good start to, to the chapter. Because what it does is it helps us put us in the mind frame that we get bored easily. What? <laughs> huh? What would you say? Um, yeah. Well, we're, we're creatures of our, of our, our evolution. I think that's the, mm-hmm. the, the takeaway I think from the chapter is that uh, we're really, really bad at making, making uh, long-term decisions for short Versus, uh, no wait, we're really, really bad at making, at putting off short-term benefit for long-term benefit. So we want it now. I want it now. And then I want more, I want more later then, right? I want it more. <laughs> I want it. I want more later than what I have now. And I'll want more than the more after that later is over for the next later. So this completely explains Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, well, I mean, it does. Like the last time, where was I? I would. It. It wasn't Walmart, but it was. It was some bargain store, mm-hmm. and I was walking through, and I had one item to pick up. I'm like, I need. A, it was a. It was a frame. We're gonna do some gardening in our backyard, and we want to do a seed starter on this frame. So I went and bought it. It was like thirty-five bucks. So I'm like, all right. And when. Um, when I got there, I saw the clearance rack, and I'm like, ooh, what do I need from this? Mm-hmm. And I was like, wait a minute, I don't need anything from here. This is all just trash. And uh, But that's, you know, I looked when we moved out of our last house, which was 16, 1700 square foot home, and we downsized, we got rid of a lot of stuff. And as we're getting rid of it, I'm like, we don't have that much stuff. And we got rid of more and mm-hmm. more and more, and it was more trips to the thrift store it was more trips to uh trash can because a lot of it was just like this is gonna happen this is getting rid of free stuff i remember ari like posting on facebook please come take our stuff (laughs) it's just like we had a lot of stuff and it just accumulated and uh it didn't bring us any happiness or joy i don't even think the accumulation did but uh right so we're doing the cities well, when you said Walmart, my mind went to like lower prices always, like translating to more stuff always. Because if it costs less, that means I can buy more. Well, that's a good deal. Just, <laughs> did, did you hear uh, J.C. Penny? Was it J.C. Penny Montgomery Awards? No, yeah, J.C. Penny. It's gotta, yeah. Montgomery Awards. <laughs> Monkey Awards no longer exist. Welcome to 2018. <laughs> <laughs> a new year. What year is it? Who was the president? <laughs> 
Um, and uh, they switched to a model where it was low prices all the time, no more sales. Mm-hmm. And immediately after doing that, so their prices were always the cheapest price you could get it for. And they're like, yeah, it'll take some people some time to get used to that idea, but as soon as we they get used to it, they'll love it and they'll come here mm-hmm. all the time. They'll we'll be outbeat, you know, whatever other their competitors are. And after a year, their sales were down significantly, as opposed to like mm-hmm. Kohl's. Like Kohl's is a complete scam. Like every time you go in there, the prices are ridiculous. But if you bring the right number of coupons, and <laughs> Kohl's bucks, and points, and right. things like that, it play the game down to. And you're there on a Thursday to buy shoes, and you're on a you know whatever. And and I realized like we're just they're just playing to our biology mm-hmm. like this has nothing to do with like a rational mind there is no rational mind when it comes to spending money or making life decisions it's just what feels good mm-hmm. and it feels good to say like these were these were $60 shoes but i got them for $35 mm-hmm. whereas had you gone to jc penny or, or whatever <laughs> you would have just gotten $35 shoes but it wouldn't have been on sale yeah, kind of like how uh, when you get your receipt from Fry's, there's the the total that you spent, and then in font, yeah, in font that's five times bigger than that is your savings. I love that. Yeah, it's all about gaming our our meat brain. Yeah, and I fall for it because when I save more than I spend, oh my god! <laughs> Posted on Facebook. Yes! yes, I'm winning at this. <laughs> And that's not awesome. saying that there's not actual real deals and there's not ways to do it. It's just they game us. Yeah. Because they know that we are lowly humans. Getting it wrong, though. So there's there's a lot of history that goes into talking about getting it wrong. And I love this chapter for the, for the sake of who my uh, co-conspirator in this podcast is because you're such a history buff when it comes to Mesa. I feel like you could probably do this podcast without me and I should just shut up this podcast and, and, and just well, I, we should, let you go to town. Note, we should, we should mention that, uh, last episode was done without us. Yes. Um, and, uh, that was a humbling experience. Yeah. Cause they're so good. Episode one, right out the gate uh, that they do and they nail it. Just really great conversation, keeping things going. Uh, I felt like I really learned a lot just hearing their authentic discovery of this information. It's not like been with them for like yeah. super long time, but they still, they digest it really well. Well, and the part that got me was that, you know, like I edit the podcast and so I look at the waveforms and when you and I do a podcast by ourselves, it is long waveform on channel one. Followed by long waveform on channel two, uh-huh. followed by long waveform on channel one, and, it, <laughs> and theirs was bop, bop, bop. It was a real conversation, mm-hmm. and you could just visually see that. So we'll continue pontificating. Yeah, well, that's our style. <laughs> Tune in to Camille and Joanna for, <laughs> for other conversational podcasts. We, we may just have to uh, just offset every other every couple uh, episodes to that. <laughs> right. But chasing the dream, and talk, so here we're talking about Hollister. This is an interesting thing about trying to come up with an, with an equation. What is this? The the pair poured over the latest findings in psychology, evolutionary theory, and brain science into an algorithm that describes a trap that economists believe is endemic to our species. And here it is. So and I'm. 
bottom is the basic translation is happiness equals your success minus your expectations equals your perceived social status. Social status. Why is our social status so intertwined with our happiness, David? Um, I don't, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the, the short answer is that you are always comparing yourself mm -hmm. to someone else. Right, relative and, to who's around you. And it's all 100% relative. I mean, we think about us here in the United States. We are the richest country on earth. Mm -hmm. um, also the most wasteful. That's part of being rich. We throw <laughs> stuff away. We're so rich we can throw stuff yep. away. We can build streets and not even drive on them. <laughs> streets are free. They're like a dollar in some city. And the more well off you are, like I mean we think we can go back fifty years and most homes in Arizona didn't have air conditioning. We can go back a hundred years and most homes in Arizona were not many at all, and they just took advantage of the trade winds and mm -hmm. wet sheets. And we go back another hundred years, and we were in Mexico. And we go back another hundred years, and we were in Spain. And we go back another hundred years, and Europeans had never settled the United States, the area that was to become the United States. Mm. And... Manifest destiny. Manifest destiny. But, I mean, you... And, you know, there are millions more people living here that didn't die of various causes. But if you go back to the same area in Europe, that was awful, awful, awful time to be alive. Hmm. And we fast forward to today, modern history, the last hundred years, we are more comfortable, we live better, we eat better, uh, everything is better. From hmm. every, We're less likely to die of childhood diseases, we're less likely to die... Um, Unless we start thinking about obesity. And diabetes. We're still less likely to die. I mean, <laughs> right. we are. Right. There, there are the offs. Some trade offs. Sides. Yeah. Um, and, and obesity is a big point in this chapter later on, talking about we don't think about long term consequences. We only care about how good we have it today. Mm -hmm. um, and if it's any worse than someone else we're seeing, we don't have it very good at all. And I also think that because we're so wealthy and because. We don't uh, feel the cost of waste, right? Uh, we're more likely to care less about that waste. Like we're, we're fearful. Like there's the fear chapter. Or there's the fear part of this chapter as well. Like we're fearful of not having something like, right? Like I think that Americans buy a lot of pickup trucks for the reason that we're afraid that we won't have a pickup truck the next time we know need to go get a dozen two by fours. Pickup trucks are awesome. <laughs> I mean, they're highly, <laughs> they're very practical. They're very like from a perspective of like, I need to go get things done. I have all this abilities with a pickup truck, but in the typical American driveway, that awesome vehicle is just sitting highly underutilized. 99 point blah, 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 cent of the time. About every single vehicle we own, though. We have these two-ton machines, mm -hmm. one-ton machines, whatever, right. uh, depending on what you got. If you got the F-150 or the F-350. Mm -hmm. And 99%, whether it's your Prius, my 20-year-old yeah. Nissan Sentra. Sits five people. And we... <laughs> seats five, more or less. It, it could. <laughs> Four and a half. 
<laughs> and and when we drive it, it's usually one person in it, unless we're all going somewhere as a family. So we're already one right. fifth of the economic value of that vehicle. And then where's my vehicle right now? Where is my vehicle all mm -hmm. but 40 minutes of a day? Yeah, sitting around. Sitting Usually in publicly subsidized. <laughs> Thank you, government. <laughs> I'm getting my taxpayer's return right there. <laughs> nah. uh, yeah, so you're right. Like all vehicles are underutilized. But I think also, though, like that underutilized vehicle, the pickup trucks that are being sold today are, are really expensive. Like, yeah, I, so I was looking. Like, at some point, I'm going to have to get a new car, and a pickup would be really nice to get. And so I'm like, all right, what's, what's like, the cheapest thing I could get? Like, how much is a Ford F-150? Mm -hmm. By the way, do you know what the uh, the highest-selling car is in America? The Ford F-150. That's right. It's not a car. It's a <laughs> truck. And um, I was looking at it, and then it started at $28,000. Mm -hmm. And that's like scrimped down to like the the workers' truck with like and the I even looked at, hand crank. I, don't, I actually I don't remember now if the Ranger is still made, but that's the mm -hmm. the step down. That's mm -hmm. the, the the more basic one, and it just blows my mind. We need we need to bring back the El Camino. <laughs> In South Africa, they they have uh, they call them Bakis. Well, they call every truck a Baki, but they have a lot of car based trucks. Right, two seats small load you know big enough uh, as big a truck bed as everywhere else we don't sell them here because i guess they're not cool they're not lifted i don't know and they're they're like why do you americans have such high centered vehicles that makes them less safe when you're driving down dirt roads and mm -hmm. stuff and i'm like because we're gonna take them into the wilderness <laughs> need clearance and they go do you americans even have wilderness anymore <laughs> totally <laughs> okay. Not as much as you guys do, even though you guys are only like twice the size of Arizona. <laughs> but, so, uh, wrapping this up, right? <laughs> well, the the truck people. I want to talk about floor people. Wrapping it up, the 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 trucks are obviously this really big, expensive thing that's built with all this extra towing capacity, and that's even something that we do less of than you know under seating our sedans, right? So I just want to finish that point off right there. Like Americans are spoiled. I we just wanted to leave that thread dangling. <laughs> But that ties Tied right up. into his idea of floor people, people that mm -hmm. buy a big, fancy, expensive house, the most house they can get for the what they can mm -hmm. afford their mortgage from, which is also government subsidized, <clears throat> <laughs> that they go and buy this house and they max out their mortgage and they don't have savings. They just basically blow everything and they don't have the savings to actually do what you need in the house, which is furniture and painting and you know mm -hmm. and that stuff's expensive but we don't plan for it we only think about the house yeah and um and the the magazine pictures that are in our heads as to what yeah, that house could look like is so expensive to do but we don't think about that and i will tie this directly into uh for example retirement we don't save for our retirements like we are screwed and we're starting to see the beginning of this is that Americans haven't saved for retirement. Mm -hmm. And and this is the, the four-fifths rule. Most Americans haven't saved for retirement. They're sure we see enough Winnebago's and stuff like that going around. Those guys, they're doing fine. Don't need mm -hmm. our help. 
but we we did a crappy job, and we're living longer. And the long-term problems with age, increased medical bills, we're not living as well, especially when we talk about um, values. Say, humans do not perceive the values of things in absolute terms. It's all about the interpretation, which gets into commuting, which we covered a lot in Walkable City. Yeah, and I feel like I'm always being lectured at when I ever think about how much I commute. Why? Why would you feel like <laughs> just just my forty forty seven minute one direction commute on a good day? Did you know, Ryan, that uh, according to the Stutzer and Frey survey, uh, that a person with a one hour commute has to earn forty percent more to be as satisfied with life as someone who walks to the office? Yeah, apparently I'm doing everything wrong. But on on the bright side, this little cute little graph with the the sad guy driving down the slope. Uh, <laughs> this was maybe the saddest saddest. <laughs> this isn't a great. I don't know if this is beautiful or horrible or maybe a mixture of both. But uh, yeah, the uh, the the image in the yeah. book on page eighty four is um, it's a bit hilarious. <laughs> it's 84 from the American wow. version as well. Yep. <laughs> us, us Americans and Canadians are on the same page for once. Right. Nice in French, though. <laughs> so, yeah. Notice the tailpipe emissions. The, he needs to upgrade to the EV. Um, so, so he can offset those emissions so he doesn't have to think about the emissions. Being it, he'll be a little happier knowing that he's not polluting the planet. Well, he is just somewhere, <laughs> just somewhere else. else. Yeah, For, the coal fire power plants up in the Navajo. Yeah. <laughs> That's the whole idea. Yeah. Of the power uh-huh. We're poor people. Are. <laughs> so, but I mean, on the bright side, though, the scale is uh, all distorted on the the y axis, and I'm only losing about point two points on life satisfaction scale. So I can feel better about. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't know exactly what life satisfaction scale uh, translates to. Yeah, is a point one percent <laughs> difference, or or is that even percentage? Is that significant? I don't, I don't know. What's the p value, guys? <laughs> Come on. Yeah. <laughs> um, my commute is twenty minutes, and um, I don't like it. It's the longest commute I've had in ten years, mm. and it's not nice. It's highly congested, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, when ASU, if I hit, hit it just right on Tuesdays and Thursdays, it's difficult. Brutal. Yeah, so so with, with regards to this, I had uh, this little thing pop in my mind as I'm reading this. And it's all about like how angry somebody can get when they come home after a long commute or whatever. Like, And I feel like I can relate to this, but let me put it in my own words here. Um when you put in a lot of time into something, your, your expectations for it to to be worth it uh, go up. Right. So my time invested in getting to work, I'm more likely to get cranky when things go wrong <laughs> because I'm expecting like, please make this, the payoff be worth it for like, for yeah, <laughs> like eh, I could chalk up five minute commute. Like, yeah, whatever. However the day goes, the day goes, but like, come on, I, which ties back to that forty percent increase in 
uh, the offset cost. The offset cost is significant. Yeah. Uh, he, he says, we keep getting it wrong. And this is just goes back to that short-term thinking versus long-term thinking and how terribly our meat brains are at doing that. And how do we get around that? I mean, he has the example about the Harvard dormitories, about how they all wanted to be in this when they finally did the did a study. They found out that people that wanted to get into the cool one weren't actually happier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They got in, but their expectations were above the reality. And so mm-hmm. they were because their expectation expectations were higher than reality, they were more miserable, less and, happy. And vice versa. Yes. The lower your expectation. This is like movies. Like, <laughs> movie, and I'm like, this movie's going to be so dumb. And I'm going to come back and it's like, well, it wasn't uh, that bad. Well, we just went to go see Legally Blonde at Mesa Arts Center last night. And my, <laughs> my, <laughs> my expectations on a scale of 1 to 10 were about a 1. And I came out very happy because I would say that the show, it was easily nine and a half. I haven't seen it, but I love the movie. When I was <laughs> in like high school. Or yeah, this is like a 20-year-old movie now. And when I heard they made a play out of it, I was skeptical. <laughs> and then when I heard that the title song is, oh my God, oh my God, you guys. Yes. I was sold. <laughs> well, this is going to be a dumb play because it was a dumb movie, uh-huh. but it's going to be worth it. Yeah, and th- <laughs> they play up all of the the dumbness uh, beautifully. So the sad part is that a place's popularity can actually destroy the elements that contribute to happiness. But so, one question that came to my mind as I was reading this section was: we put a lot of faith in recording. Uh, how people report their happiness, um, but then note how bad we are at projecting what will make us happy. I just wonder if like, we're also bad at expressing just how happy we are in the moment. Well, happiness is a difficult thing to measure. It is. Because, you know, like... I'm trying to think. There's a lot of happiness surveys that are out there and that talk about, like, peop- uh, adults with children are less happy than adults without children. And this goes part and parcel with the short-term thinking versus long-term thinking, too, hmm. is that when people look back, they're much happier to have had kids. Mm-hmm. Although, not people who don't have kids are also happy, but right. they're not as miserable. Or people who are like regret that they never had kids or they never had another kid. Or like my mom told me on a number of occasions as a single, as an only child, like I wish I would have had another or three, you know? And so I don't know, maybe there's something, or, but then we're also bad at looking backwards. It's <laughs> like, because yeah, well, we, for nostalgia our, fact, nostalgia right? Nostalgia is terrible too. So, our meat brains are dumb. <laughs> so, you know, there's this, so we put the statistics seem to not question how good we are at saying how good we feel in the moment, but he's very critical as to our judgment going, looking forward and looking backward. And so I just wonder if there's not room to be a little bit more critical as to the statistics in the moment. Uh, you know, I've looked into some of the happiness data and like how we measure happiness and things like that. And 
It's actually better well thought. It's more well thought out than I had thought. Uh, hmm. Some of the early stuff was trash because they weren't taking into account how dumb we are. Mm-hmm. But as it's evolved, it does seem to be better, but I, I don't remember. Mm-hmm. I, I was surprised at how much less bad it was. So, with that, <laughs> adjust your expectations as to however you feel. Um, we get into the obligatory architects are bad. Yes, damn star architects. Not just star architects, just how modern architecture and the Brasilia come. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, then he's like, oh all mean to us planners and engineers and like we don't know what the hell we're doing like, come on man it's not wrong <laughs> uh, the one thing that I wanted to talk on page 91 talking about errors from above mm-hmm. you know, the idea that we have this human tendency to simplify multifaceted problems you know even even um, less quote unquote advanced cultures do the same thing that we we fancy advanced people do is that we tend to make our stories more and more simple, mm-hmm. even when we were faced with complex issues. And then that's reflected in our answers to these complex problems. Because if we can tell a story simply, like the architect who will make a presentation to city council so that his pro- project will be approved, the simpler he can keep his story and his pitch to council, I guess the the better. Keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> kiss. We're keeping it kiss, baby. You know, this is talking about Brasilia and the problems with that. But he's he talks about like consider the complexity inherent in places that mixing, living, working, shopping, recreating, and other functions. Uh, just consider that complexity. I, I want to know where he's talking about because you know, everywhere here in Mesa, we don't we don't mix these things. We create single function neighborhoods and just you keep all that complexity out of here it's fascinating to reflect on mesa and think about both of us live in Mm -hmm. neighborhoods my house was built my neighborhood was built about 1950 we Mm -hmm. were a first first ring suburb Mm -hmm. and your neighborhood was built once 1970 something yeah so my house is 79 and i've talked to other neighbors their houses were built as like late mid 80s okay so more Actually, it's a lot more recent than I thought. Um, so, so you're you're in a thirty year old neighborhood, forty year old neighborhood. I'm in a sixty seventy year old neighborhood. But both of us are at the, you know, my neighborhood is the beginning of the suburban dream, mm-hmm. and single family detached. This is how we're going to live. Your neighborhood is the thirty year later. Mm-hmm. This is how we're going to do it. And the streets are wider. Mm-hmm. The houses are further set back from the street. Um, not much difference in the distance between the homes. Right. They, they seem to be pretty much 10, 15 feet apart. Yeah, side um, side, yeah. Yesterday I was in Eastmark dropping off something mm. at a friend's house that I had borrowed a long time ago. <clears throat> David. Sorry. And <laughs> it's, it's actually a little bit closer to the street and a little bit closer together. But the same, and the landscaping is actually really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if if they require landscaping to be installed with construction. Um, I know that that used to not be a thing. But uh, it looks nice. It's very uniform. Mm-hmm. And it's very sterile. 
It did feel very sterile, and I definitely didn't see people outside on a Saturday morning. No complexity? Uh, yeah, but it was in the 55 and up area where mm-hmm. they, you store the old people. Okay. Um, <laughs> store them. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. Uh, while they're still above ground, we store them here. Right. <laughs> Before they become... Stored below ground. Okay. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's just like, all right, we've been making the same thing that he says is a mistake for 80 years. Mm-hmm. Are we really at this precipice that he's talking about? If we continue going down this road, are we going to be there? Because this is the dream that we've had for three generations now, mm-hmm. and it's worked all right. Yeah, and this kind of reflects a lot on uh, the curbside chat that Chuck Marone gave uh, recently in Phoenix, right? Where, again, we're really bad at uh, understanding the long-term cost of things. And we've been able to keep getting it wrong in building suburbia from 1950 till today. And just now, after a couple life cycles of this like lack of uh, positive return on the taxation side, and uh, the public ledger is not coming out <laughs> positive that we're just now uh, having to pay the piper on not Turns doing the tail of that yeah. graph. And we're like, oh, wait, not doing the math is really starting to hurt. And the other thing that it's made me think about is how Mesa itself is, you know, I think about the, the evolution of the Salt River Valley mm-hmm. and Phoenix, you know, like, all right, so what? go back in time again all right we had the hohokam or the um kuhukam i know they've changed the name you know they lived here for a long time longer than we've lived here um we being modern americans um they lived here longer than the united states has existed uh then they went away around 1400 probably because of lack of water or mm, who knows yeah and then, <clears throat> but those are like pre-industrial years. Post- they lived in cities, though. Yeah. That's that's, the <laughs> or maybe maybe. But post-industrial years go or count for more. Oh yeah, they're, they're more <laughs> yeah. the closer it is in our memory, the more good it is. And you know, so then we had about two hundred, three hundred years of of a lot more. The Salt River Valley was sparsely populated. It was a lot of. Um, the, the people that lived around here came down to farm in the winter and then they left in the summer. Uh, there were some, you know, for example, the, the people that make up the Salt River Maricopa Indian uh, community, they they were here pre, pre, let's see, about the same time the Spanish were starting to explore, okay. uh, but pre-European settlement in this area. Uh, I don't even think... Spanish missionaries had established missions. But then we, so fast forward after the United States had the Mexican-American War, we took this section from Mexico, uh, conquered this section, and we, about 50 years after the Spanish-American War, we started to, Phoenix was established. Then Mesa, 10 years later after that, and Scottsdale and E. Chandler and all mm-hmm. these Glendale, all these little cities started popping up about seven, ten miles from each other. And that was a different way of settling an area than we had before. Mm-hmm. And each one of these was to be the city center. And so that was almost the first 
like suburban experiment was to have all these different homesteads that sure. became cities. And then when they started to grow and all grow into each other. So here we are talking about cities, true cities, cities that are the center of a region that you have to go pretty far to get to another town. And here we are in a massive metropolitan area, which is large. It is. And how does it, how can we reflect on trying to retrofit suburbia when we are almost all suburbia? Mm. Like, and never mind the thoughts about what's our long-term water supply, what, what do yeah. these things go? How do we continue living here for the next hundred years, never mind the next thousand, and make that work with really a poor hand? Mm. Yeah. Because <laughs> the built environment is not helping us at all. Like the way that we built the, the Mesa, right? Community by community by community. Does Mesa win because we're upstream from our major water source? Does Paige win because they're the most upstream? <laughs> we got more people and we got more jobs. <laughs> yeah. And I think we have more water allocation rights as well. <laughs> when water uh, shortages start happening, uh, yeah. which might happen in 10 years... We'll have to figure out which what's worth more, wet water or legal water. Wet water. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, that was a long pontification. <laughs> but it just, like the, the right. reference in history, we were so bad mm -hmm. at thinking about where we are in time. Americans, we've always been. Mm -hmm. But... 1776 was nope. not that long ago. No. 1776 was the beginning of a revolution. Right. Not actually that. And, you know, there was, what, what's Jamestown 15? Yeah. You know, that settlement, uh, settlement in Mexico was the late 1400s, early 1500s. So Europeans had been in the area that is now the United States for longer before the United States existed than the United States has existed today. Mm -hmm. So it's like 500 years worth of getting it wrong. Well, I, don't <laughs> I don't know if they were getting it. It's totally wrong true. there. Yeah. True. <laughs> we're, all, we're always getting it wrong. I think yeah. that's part of it. But how do we become better humans and better planners? Right. There's no feedback, proper feedback loops, I think, on all this stuff. Like, right? Yeah, we... it, it's, it's absolutely the, the question of the commons. Right. The, and But I think that, you know, like... Tragedy. Uh, yeah. Tell me what the tragedy of commons is. The tragedy of the commons, the as typically uh, explained, would be say that you and two other farmers share a field, and farmer one has two cows, and farmer two has two cows, and farmer three has two cows, and we're all happily sharing this field with six cows, and that seems to be a nice yield. But farmer three gets greedy and says, "Ah, I can try to get more milk with a third cow." And so his cows start producing a little less, but in the end, he's out ahead of his competitors. But And his competitors' cows are suffering a little bit now because they're producing less because they don't really have a good uh, production happening because the cows are a little bit too starved from the amount of grass that they have available to them. But in this spiral, death spiral of competition, everybody needing another cow, the cows end up really suffering by not having enough of the common area that the, these farmers are sharing, the, the grass. Yeah, the land, yeah, the grass. And that, and that is the, 
the idea of unintended consequences or mm -hmm. thinking that supplies are limitless. Yes. You can always expand the field. Why didn't they just expand the field? <laughs> or why, you know, or the libertarian, why don't they just uh, own the, the field outright and then that way they don't have to, you know, argue over well, what's the common. your neighbor's cow? <laughs> right. <laughs> but, 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 you know, I think that the field, we solved the field right. problem by private property. Right, right. But we didn't solve the problem of the, the cow poop that's yeah. now in those tanks and being or, flushed down. Or the cow farts that are creating yeah. global warming. Which, you know, <laughs> and, and I will talk about that later because we do have these massive, uh, here's the, what's that great line, it would be hard to design a crisis better suited to provoke inaction mm. than climate change. Right. What? <laughs> a million different things cause a million different mm -hmm. things. There's no one big simple answer. We don't think about the larger consequences of our actions because there's it's not priced in, right? Like there's no there's no immediate feedback, right? Don't do this because I don't punch someone because they're going to punch me back. And and ecologically, like the only reason that species have ever survived the, the length of a millennia that they have on this planet is because they have had the proper feedback loops to tell them don't do that. Or if there's been a species ha that has not competed well with the feedback loop mechanism, they've died out. I mean, I guess the writing's on the wall for us because we're not very good with the feedback loops. We will I... always find more. <laughs> we will always find more. We'll just, we'll just kill ourselves. It's fine. We're going to take a break right now and we're going to talk about your little uh, man on the street vacation yes. endeavor you mm. took. My deep dive into unfolding this. You traveled into deepest, <laughs> darkest Phoenix, into the center of our massive cancerous growth that we call Metro Phoenix. Yeah, to uncover what these folks taking over parking spaces are doing. Taking over our hard-won, paid-for parking spaces. Yes, with the meters that indicate clearly your car should go here. But instead, no. They have other ideas. And so that's what the segment's all about. They're going to rent a parking spot and use it for something other than parking their car. Believe it or not. Whoa. See what they have to say. Hi, I'm Ryan Wozniak. I'm here with Mainstream Mesa. We're here at Parking Day. The day's wrapping up, but I found the organizer of the event, and I'd like to have her introduce you to our audience and explain a little bit about what Parking Day is. Sure. My name is Stacy Champion. This is actually the 10th annual Phoenix Parking Day. I've been involved since year one. I've been the main organizer for the last, I guess, eight years now. I own a public relations and consulting firm here locally and also do a ton of advocacy and activism, community-oriented stuff centered around sustainability and fighting the good fight. Very cool. What were some of the exhibits that we saw today at Parking Day? Uh, so it's different every year. We had some really cool stuff from some landscape designers this year and some other folks. We had the City of Phoenix Parks Department out here this year. We had a, a weird music park. There was Life Before Instagram Park. Uh, there were giant checkers and bike parking. Uh, and all kinds of fun stuff. So the the main goal of Parking Day, it's a, a worldwide one-day event, 
happens on the third Friday in September every year all over the all over the world. If you search Parking Day 2018 on Twitter, it's pretty cool because you can see stuff going on everywhere. So hashtag Parking Day 2018? Yes. Or just maybe hashtag Parking Day? Yeah, well, yeah, or hashtag Parking Day 2018 for everything going on here. And then we're hashtag Parking Day PHX for okay. our stuff to see pictures and videos from our parks today. Um, but so Parking Day is a worldwide one-day event that helps people reimagine how we use our public space. And if we used our public spaces and designed them for people, first and foremost, I always tell people this isn't an anti-car event. It's a pro-people event. And I think that goes well with some of the messages that we like to share on this podcast about rebalancing, prioritizing people, prioritizing other things other than the motorists' way of life. Well, thank you very much for this interview. Can you tell people how to maybe get involved next year if they're interested? Sure. So we have a Parking Day Phoenix Facebook page that's pretty easy to find. Uh, People can also reach out to me personally if they'd like to, but probably the easiest way is the Parking Day Phoenix Facebook page. Thank you very much. I'm with uh, a group who had uh, a setup, and I'll, I'd like them to introduce themselves and give you a quick overview as to what the goals of their day was all about. Hi, my name is Tony Candonetto. Uh And I'm Crystal Castro, and we're both from Smith Group. Um, it's an architecture engineering firm, but we're both in the landscape architecture department. And so uh, you came down here, Parking Day 2018, or hashtag Parking Day Phoenix, PHX, uh, if anybody wants to come see it. Uh, I, have a, I have a third uh, join, joining us from Smith Group. Can you introduce yourself? Tasha Wunderlich, also part of the Landscape Group. Very cool. So uh, who would like to tell me a little bit about what your exhibit was about today and what kind of motivated it or what, uh, how it came to be? Um, so, uh, we actually, we did this last year and it was very last minute. We heard about it, like, as it was getting close to it and we were rushing by. So this year we kind of tried to prepare a little bit earlier. Um, we like just during work, you know, we kind of like got together, did a little charrette, you know, did like sketches. And this idea actually came from, uh, Mike Faulkner, who's uh, also a landscape architect, but the two ideas were, they're all kind of themed with the desert. Um, and we just really wanted to celebrate, you know, what the desert is, you know, and kind of like personal memories. And um, so we ended up thinking, okay, you know, like we have this cool canopy, like hanging pictures and then having a progression of mountains as the base. Um, so at first we were going to title it Desert Dreams, but it ended up being um, called Before Instagram because it was just really nice, you know, to have uh, to experience, you know, different photos and memories. And we even had the little like uh, the old slides back from like, I don't know. Kodachrome slides. Yeah, those like really old ones, you know, and it's just I feel like it really immerses you. Um, and I think Parking Day is really about creating spaces for people, right? Places that bring people and like they attract them and they want to stop and you know you're walking to get a coffee or whatever and you're like oh what's this so it was really nice seeing just people like go through the project and like look at photos and ask questions and take photos so that was really nice that we were able to accomplish that especially here you see such a sea of parking across the phoenix metro area and it's this is a way for people to imagine something else you know like let's have less parking let's have more community spaces spaces that people can actually use and enjoy we're trying to find alternate modes of transportation we shouldn't be focusing so heavily on parking mm-hmm. it would be nice to have parks and places that people can go to gather meet new people for the community so this was our way of showing an example of that awesome
I think the whole idea behind Parking Day is having all of these firms and these people come together from a community to take up a parking spot for a few hours. And that's the, the core idea of, par- of Parking Day is just to take up a, a parking spot that would go to a car for a few hours and instead turn it into a green space, something that's out of the ordinary, extraordinary, and ma- really makes people think about how, they, how they're using the space. Very cool. So uh, obviously Parking Day is always a spectacle. There's people stopping by and uh, kind of enjoying what you put on. Uh, what were some reactions that you got today from your exhibit? I think curiosity was uh, a big thing. Like, yeah. what are you guys doing here? It's a parking space. So they, they it's it's something that is a spectacle, uh, spectacle and people stop by and they would they would just ask about and about it and walk through our exhibit and they, they were able to like um, switch up their day so I think yeah. they, they really enjo- enjoyed that aspect. We had a lot of people stopping by and looking at the photos we had and asking about them and that's kind of a nice aspect is we get to meet new people and interact. Last year we had had a setup with like a little photo frame and we have tons of people coming by taking photos. It's just a nice way to interact with the community. It's really cool to see how many people we get to stop by and get an interest in what's going on and thinking of, like you said, their space differently. Yeah. It's not too often that people stop at a parking spot and have a social interaction. Yeah. So that's, that is an incredible uh, thing that I cherish about Parking Day and it helps people imagine. So I'd like uh, you all to maybe uh, reflect a little bit on what a Main Street is and whether or not uh, parking, uh, a parking day has anything to say about what makes uh, a Main Street special and like your relationship to wanting to live in a neighborhood with a Main Street. I think Main Streets are really, when you have a well-done, well-designed Main Street, that's the heart of the city because it's usually got nice shops when it's well done that can spill out into the public space and get people interested in what's going on. They want to spend time there. Best Main Streets always have a beautiful array of trees and landscape, a place that is pleasant that people are like, I want to spend my time here. And I think that Parking Day gives an example of how that could happen. Um, I think that we, we had, the ASLA uh, student chapter had done their Parking Day on Mill last year, and it's just kind of nice... that's a more pleasant environment to be in you know and we're trying to reflect that in our design this isn't like a great street but it could be if people paid more care to it more attention planted trees i trees really (laughs) to me trees and having an outdoor public space like outside of the storefront are the two main key factors to having a beautiful main street i think they really enhance the city it's a place that people want to go and be drawn to. And when you don't have that, like, where else are you supposed to gather, you know, for activities? Mm-hmm. Here, here. And that's one of the things, too. I mean, that's our job as landscape architects and landscape designers, you know, is people would always think, like, oh, you guys just, like, plant trees or design, like, little outdoor spaces. But really, it's more than that. It's everything that Tasha just said. It's what brings people to a space and what makes it comfortable. And I think, you know, especially nowadays, a whole, like, you know, Instagram, you know, like worthy spot, you know, that brings a lot of people, you know, you see something on Instagram, whether it's a cool art piece, you know, and I think that's something that's missing a lot in just like urban environments is like art, you know, public art and, you know, spaces that are, you know, interactive art, playgrounds, you know, things that aside from like everything that you just mentioned, you know, like shade seating, you know, shops, things for you to actually do, um, you know, 
kids nowadays, you know, they see something cool and they're like, I want to go take a picture with that, you know, have like a little photo shoot and it starts spreading to one other person and another person. And then the next thing you know, you know, people, this is a destination at that point. And it brings, you know, not only people, but it brings business to retail around here, you know, and it starts blooming into something or it turns into a community, right? You start like our installation today, you start having those conversations with people. You start, oh, what's this? You know, and you start meeting someone that you never would have. You know, we're always on our phone, you know, looking down and we're passing each other. But when you have something to talk about with someone else, it's like, well, that was a nice encounter. Yeah. So. Here, here. <laughs> All right. I have a final comment. I would say that I think a well-done Main Street also adds to the health of a city because mm-hmm. when you have a space where you can get away and you feel some sort of peace and serenity and that you can get outdoors that does everybody a lot of good i I think we need more of them agreed so uh thank you so much uh if you guys uh, do you guys like uh uh, are are you on twitter do you have a handle do you have anything that you would like to introduce people to as far as following things that you like or a hero of yours or maybe something that you just you know at at, um something that you do as uh, you know advocate uh, on something of your anything Um. I, I recently went to a lecture. There's a couple out in Miami who, who really focus on urban design and creating these like eccentric art pieces that bring the community together. It's a little bit out there, but I would, I would take a look into um, R&R Studios. I think they're actually going to do uh, an installation in Mesa uh, pretty soon, so I would definitely take a look at that. And I would just encourage people, again, not a lot of people know what landscape architecture is, but I would encourage people to look into that and just urban design and human psyche you know and really just what makes a place beautiful you know we always think about budgets and money and like oh is it convenient but you know there's something beautiful about just creating a space where people can gather and I would say as as much as this is said again and again getting vocal and getting out there and you know making your community and your representatives aware of what's important to you and what you want they listen to that at some point they have to and if you make them feel like this is something that you really, really want, it's going to happen. We just need enough people behind it. Well, I think that uh, that says a lot about what Parking Day is all about and what passionate people can do when they intentionally get out and try to recreate the space and take it away, rebalance it really from the space between people and cars and how we get around and how we make a great city. The, the other part here is the focusing on danger, page 93, 94. Mm. Just the idea that we're massively incapable of measuring our own safety. That the stuff that harms us truly harms us. Like the number one, two, and three causes of death are all diet or lifestyle related. Obesity, heart disease, and cancer. It's the little things. The little things. By far, even more than cars, Mm -hmm. is dying from these diseases. And... To, prevent, to reduce the chance of getting heart disease, just eat better and exercise. To reduce the chance of having diabetes, eat have you Have you exercise. shopped at my stores? I mean, aisles and aisles upon tons of bad choices <laughs> that I can make, David. So much good stuff. Even uh, the produce aisles are not, not as good anymore. <laughs> I was just looking through that. This, the system is stacked against us, whether you're trying to get around with active transportation or to even eat healthy. We're doomed. But it, you know, we're we're perpetually worried about the the black swan events, the really mm-hmm. really bad, yeah. but really rarely 
rare events that we don't think about the big stuff that actually causes problems. Yeah, that the thought experiment that he says, just close your eyes and quickly think, what do you picture killing you? And my, my mind went to a tiger mauling me. There's, there's, <laughs> there's, there's absolutely 0% chance of a tiger mauling me to death. We could make that. <laughs> but, but I mean, that's where my mind went immediately. I mean, so it's just, it's, it's amazing what our imaginations will do to us. But meanwhile, our, the biggest chance that we're going to die a premature death is probably a car crash. Mm-hmm. And after that, it's probably heart disease or cancer. Well, I had to check my text message on that car crash. So, oh, it was important. It was, <laughs> or it might have been. You never would <laughs> it might have been important. I don't know. Oh, jeez. Yeah, this is the talking about. We we do not remember the world accurately. Mm-hmm. That's that's good. But uh, this is the the part of it. Like right now, we're having this conversation in downtown Mesa about events. And police is really worried about hmm. a an attacker, a terrorist event where someone drives their car down the middle of an event space, mm-hmm. which is scary. Yeah. Um, and and I can't discount that that is a scary thought, and I can't say that it will never happen here because it's happened elsewhere. Why hmm. why why are we special that it doesn't? But then I started thinking, I'm like, how often has that happened? All right, not not actually that that often, and. When it usually happens, it's an old person who mistakes the brake for the gas. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But we still think about, you know, like in Paris when someone drove right. that or in New York City. Yeah, we're getting crazy with all these bollards at the edge of the sidewalk. But we're going we're going to the point where we're going to price out. Mm-hmm. It's going to be too expensive to run a public event. And that goes directly in opposite of what this guy's talking about is that the more and more we start talking to each other, that we encourage neighborly interactions mm-hmm. with people that we live near, people that are not of the same headspace, the the less we are interacting with each other, the less safe we are. Like, even to the point of mental disease, which that blew my mind in the previous mm-hmm. chapter, that we are actually making ourselves sick. And that immediately made me think of school shootings mm-hmm. and, and you know, psychological diseases and just dealing with psychosis or yeah, just, just people not being able to function well in society. And so they end up, you know, more likely to have a negative interaction with our police force or what have you, that that ends up being the spiral for something that they can't come back from because, you know, one bad interaction with uh, the police and they lose their job and they have a record and, and it's simplistic to say that suburbs are the cause of this problem. Sure. But it is, and I don't want to say suburbs, the way we're building our cities, our urban form, which includes East Mark, it includes your neighborhood, it includes my neighborhood, and it leads to these long-term consequences, but they're tiny little changes. This is the butterfly, mm-hmm. the time travel butterfly right. question. The flap of a butterfly's wings, how much does that affect the thing, the thing, the thing, the thing, the thing? But, but yeah, the, it goes beyond even the way that we build our cities is really what we invest in, right? Like so we invest a lot in police and fire safety because of quote unquote, the, the fear of danger, right? The, the, the emotional miscalculation that he's talking about in this book. And so if we're, if we're spending more on police stations than we are our schools, um, then what does that say as to 
what we what we value and whether or not we're building towards something better or we're just trying to to keep the lid on the shit pot you know like it's well and this is the whole thing like engineers are solving problems which create more problems that the idea of building that wide freeway of a road because people were crashing well it's led more people to crashing to solve the problem so we're solving a but causing b which is 10 times worse you know and the thing that blew my mind was the the Mm -hmm. quote on on fire just as many people die in fires in new wide street suburbs as we're dying in old narrow street neighborhoods mm-hmm. and and it's just stunning to me because you know when in development it's all about moving the trash truck and the fire truck and and expanding roads like i'm working on a project right now that has an existing 30-foot roadway and i'm like that seems big enough I'm not going to worry about it the city's like that's not our 50-foot design standard mm. it's and not the standard like, dude what not standard. And I looked at it, and it was like it was updated in 1997. And but I'm like, it's a 50 foot right of way, which includes 40 feet of roadway. Mm-hmm. 40 feet of roadway for a dead end neighborhood street. Yikes! What are we doing? Not context. And and, and <laughs> what does that cost the city to go from a 30 foot right of way, which seems adequate to a 40 foot or I'm sorry, 50 foot right of way that increment of mm-hmm. additional expenses. Yeah. And by the city, you mean the people of the city. That's right. <laughs> because the people that vote for the city right. council members totally are thinking about this type of thing, which means that the council members are doing it, which means that the council members are paying attention to what the engineers are doing, which means that the engineers are doing it right. Mm. Or thinking about that. Bonkers. And bringing that good information back to the city council members, which are then going back to the neighborhood. Right. Feedback loop broken. Yep. Perfect. <laughs> Why is he... Everything is great. <laughs> everything is awesome. <laughs> uh, so now we get into the most controversial part of the book. Climate change. Uh-oh. Just if, if that term gives you goosebumps just put your fingers in your ears right now la, 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 la. that's what we're all doing i mean it's i drove my car true. over here across very big roads so yeah w- one of the favorite people that i follow on twitter uh not jeff speck jeff uh jeffrey tumlin he's uh this nelson nygaard uh principal uh awesome guy who's done a lot of research on sustainable transportation and he just tweeted Parking minimums are climate change denialism. Yes, I I was like, oh, round of applause, round of applause. (laughs) I was looking at the uh, zoning code for Tempe, and they have parking maximums. I was like, oh, that's that's cool, brilliant. Yeah. And I looked at it, and so we're we're doing uh, we did a parking study for a commercial uh, shopping center, and we're like, all right. Build out scenario. Everyone has their dream tenant. Mm-hmm. So we're tripled the number of restaurants. We've added a couple bars. Everyone is there. And then we used a shared parking analysis. Mm-hmm. And I also ran the numbers for using the city minimum code. So this is the minimum number of parking spaces you need. 
If we did the minimum parking numbers, we would need almost a thousand parking spaces. For how many units? Uh, it was for 18 commercial tenants. Okay. Um, and I was like, that seems like a lot. And mm-hmm. I'm like, I see now we have a space for roughly 800 parking spots, and they're barely used. Mm. And I'm like, okay. And so we ran the shared use analysis. So at this build-out scenario, at the maximum time of day, like mm-hmm. on Friday night when everyone's at the restaurant and the bar, bar's studying to go, mm-hmm. the church has something going the on. The bank is still barely open. The bank got the <laughs> retail stores, got their last customers hey, in there. It was 380 parking spaces were needed. Wow. Based on just, and this is an engineering model, so and please, I also assume it's wrong. Please tell me their code is, at least says that you can use this data. Yes, we can use the data. Whew. But the parking maximum is no more than twice the minimum. Oh, wow. That is a lot for a maximum. So I was looking at it. Maybe it was one and a half. Maybe it's one and a half. So I'm like, all right, our minimum is a thousand parking spaces, of which I just looking at it, we don't need. And our maximum is 1,500, 2,000 parking spaces, which seems dumb. Mm-hmm. Like, who would build that? And and when we did the math and did the shared use mar- model and took a look at it, it was four, just under 400 spaces. Right. And we know that the actual utilization is like 100. What are we doing? So some of these standard zoning codes that we have, these numbers are so arbitrary for what we use for minimum parking spaces, right? The The amount of empirical evidence is laughable, right? It's just borrow from the other guy. What, what's, what, what's the neighboring town doing? But yeah, we'll just use that. Copy and paste. Yeah. And so this is unfortunate of how, why we get it wrong and we get it, keep on getting it wrong is because people just borrow from the other people who are getting it wrong. This is how we get acres and acres of tarmac. Right. That doesn't benefit us in any way costs us a lot of money is going to cost our children a lot of money to either retrofit remove Mm -hmm. or change or just to maintain so no matter what we bought into we bought a boat and it's not working well and every time we want to go take it out on the water and enjoy ourselves something else breaks yep so a city is a hole in the ground where you put money Mm. Well, another, uh, you know, I've been a fan of form-based codes on this podcast before as another one that I'll kick over to form-based codes. It builds in the shared use parking model where it automatically builds in reductions based on complementary uses with different peak times. So like the, the quintessential one is the residential and the office. They have completely different peak times. Office, you know, midday residential is at night. And so when people come home, they have a park, a place to park and the office, the middle of the day, they have a place to park. That parking space could be the same parking space for both those uses. So, so thinking about the crisis, climate change crisis. So no big deal. Um, we've already seen huge die offs in populations of, uh, our species of critters on this planet. And probably looking at 15 to 37 percent of species being lost by 2050. But most of those are bugs. Yeah, and nah. fish. I could li- fish. I could live without bugs. I'm yeah. me. 
me personally. Don't, I don't, don't I don't eat bugs, but maybe the thing that I eat that that it eats and that it eats eats bugs, but yeah. I don't eat bugs. But, yeah, I mean, there's there's no reason that something that's got a couple million years of evolutionary history <clears throat> in an ecosystem has any purpose at all. Any. All right, payouts from weather-related natural disasters quadrupled between 1980 and 2009. Fortunately, that's gone down a lot, right? We're not seeing as many natural disasters hitting major settlements of human activity. No, no, no okay. nothing comes to mind. Fixed. Uh, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> See what I did there? No, it was like a NASA thing with, but oh, now, now with, the, now the that's now, last year. Oh, we've yeah. had new hurricanes. <laughs> new places are flooding, mm-hmm. although they're poorer, so we care a little less. Oh, sorry. Um. You're you're so brutally honest, David. <clears throat> Consuming plants, animals, soil, minerals, water, and energy at a far greater rate than the planet can replenish them. But does this have any anything to do with Arizona? Because we're already hot, and so if we just get a little bit hotter, it's not that big of a deal, right? Like we're already miserable through the summer. Did you did you see that map that uh, came out? That was a map of land use. Hmm broken out and then consolidated over the united states yeah the giant swaths that like go to like the the agriculture that feed what we eat yeah (laughs) beef cows were a huge portion Uh and then 10 times that was feed for livestock yeah and i was like wow Uh, that was stunning and then Mm -hmm. you saw how tiny 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 human settlement Uh houses were right on that which i thought was stunning and yet, that little bit of land that we use for human settlement is one third or better the energy consumption that it takes us to travel, trans, you know, uh, get across that land for travel purposes. The energy consumption in travel is, I don't know, something like 34, 36% of all uh, carbon emissions. Yeah. Well, that's cool. As so. long as we don't live and we don't drive, we're fine. Okay. <laughs> That's what I learned it, here. It the, the the Earth's feedback loop does have a solution, I guess. It's it just does. It's, it's it's a not a little bit longer scale, and it's a little bit indifferent. And it's not a happy city. Uh, Earth does not pick winners or losers. Mm. <laughs> um, that's dark. Then we talk about oil and the idea of peak oil. Mm. We've been talking about peak oil for a long time now, at least twenty years, probably thirty. Yeah, I've never really been too concerned about peak oil because we just find another carbon source like the compressed natural gas or whatever. We're just that's a byproduct of mining for oil. (laughs) But I mean, like they've found new ways to frack gas or frack that stuff out of the earth, right? With all this water pressure and things of that nature, and so they find a way to like. resource and it's only it is, accessible yeah. because the other resources the other ways of extracting oil are more expensive now because mm-hmm. they're running out yeah so they look more competitive right yeah so as the price goes up you can access more and more oil but the price still went up and so we americans we people that buy stuff and drive places our costs are going up mm-hmm. and so even though we can find new forms of of fueling our cars or, or making plastics, petrochemicals, all that fun stuff. Which, to be honest, all those things are pretty awesome. They do they do 
good things that make life a lot easier. I don't think the medical field would be as effective as it is now without plastics and other petrochemicals. But we are running out, and they are getting more and more expensive. So extrapolate that another decade, another 20 years, mm. another score. Mm. Score? Oh, oh, oh. Oh, yeah. All right, Abe. I'm trying to use I'm trying. I'm bringing it back, baby. Way to go, Lincoln. Bring it back. Score, I believe, is 20 years, is it not? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I look at this, and, like, Saudi Arabia has already started to, to diversify their holdings. Aramco, you know, they put made that public because they want to be more diverse which is crazy for a country that's been mining oil for less than 100 years and thought to have limitless reserves. Hmm. The biggest producer of oil on the planet is starting to diver, diver, blah, blah, diversify its holdings because it sees the writing on the wall. Well, it's a resilient economy to diversify. It's good. It is. Good. Way to go, Saudi Arabia. Um, good luck. <laughs> because they have other things that are happening that bigger yes. issues. Yes. Um, Chinese automakers expect their compatriots to be buying 40 million cars a year by 2020. And I looked that number up. Uh, 2017, uh, 25.4 million cars were sold in China. Mm. Is that, is that uh, so on track? Year. I don't know. It'll be huh. interesting to huh. see if we're going to hit 40 million. But I don't think it's a it's a direct relationship. I think it's a logarithmic ex escalation. Because mm. as people get more and more money in, right. the, in these countries that are doing better economically, they want to live more like us Americans. In contrast, 17.2 million cars were sold in the United States. So it's not not quite not quite double, mm -hmm. but it's close. And I could see it being double. In just a few years. Yeah. So prices for oil is one of those feedback loops that I think we should address because it's it's kind of weird. The way that prices will affect you, but your your way that you live your life like is largely affected by these investments in a city and how we build the city that last fifty hundreds of years, what, right? How long's your mortgage for? Thirty. I could sell to the next sucker, but no. Yeah. Just don't be the last. All right, just don't be. Yeah, just don't be the last one holding the bag, right? Um, but yeah, like these these investments that we make in where we live and how we live and the the systems that serve the way we live are long term investments, and they can't easily respond to something like peak oil. Yeah, uh, if oil was five dollars a gallon tomorrow. Yeah. Or what's what? What did I pay? Or even more, something more reasonable. Sorry, let's not, not oil. let's think. Gasoline. Yeah, let's think like even five years from now, right? Like five years from now, let's say that the price of gas triples. What? That's unreasonable. <laughs> five years ago, I was still paying three dollars. Mm. <laughs> okay. You know, adjusted for cost of living or inflation, right? Like that, that extra cost isn't something that's easily adjusted to, oh, I have all the options in the world. I'll just drive less. I mean, how, we don't, we don't really exactly have, okay. <laughs> we don't exactly have. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to look like dumber and dumber with the, the boogers. <laughs> well, I mean, but, but you think about it. 
about that, you think about that, I mean, it's sort of the reverse of emerging economies. Mm -hmm. Those are mostly motorcycle and moped-based mm. transportation. And why? Because the cost of the vehicle is low, and the cost of uh, fueling it is low, and the cost of maintaining it is low. We have these big, extravagant vehicles that mostly don't do anything. Um, so because of that, do we just down, downgrade? That's an easy that's an easy place where you could squeeze. Or maybe Uber and Lyft will save us all with the shared driving autonomous vehicles. It's still a big giant car. <laughs> it's empty half yeah. the time. And yeah, or maybe. My God, it's just it it is silly to think that that adding more cars solves the problem with the expensive cars. And adding more expensive cars. What are they estimating an autonomous vehicle will cost? Yeah, we talked about this previously. Like $100,000, $150,000. Yeah. But if it's engineered to last. They're not. <laughs> if it's. Has your phone ever crashed? But these are still. <laughs> yeah, like, but like our phones and our cars today are, and our, you know, washing machines that we have and the fridges that we have, they are all meant for like our personal consumption. Like, and we, industrial. You're yeah. talking about a big rig. Yeah. And we don't, we don't engineer those things to last because one, we have to keep the cost down because they're an individual purchase. And two, like the, I don't know, the iterations or they, they need well, you on the hook. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're designed to fail. But I guess when we get to something that can be more of a community's asset, it can be thought and engineered to last longer. Hopefully. Which is why rental cars and fleet vehicles are a completely different car you can't buy <laughs> on the market. Okay, David, you win. <laughs> but I, I, the, my rose tinted glasses are hopeful for the future. Technology will solve all of our problems. And that that is a problem that of our societies that we've relied on that all too often. Well, which is fine because it has. It really, really has. To some degree. But at the same time, what happens if it doesn't, or if it doesn't respond quickly enough? When mm -hmm. was the last time we had a mass human die-off from from a, like, for example, like disease? From yes, yeah, something that we're not currently. Uh, it was right medicating before, ourselves for right before World War One. Spanish influenza killed a huge portion of the Earth's population. We haven't had that since, and that was bad. It's real bad when a lot of people die. I'm not a fan. Mm. What happens if we face something like that again? How will our economy? If we had a an event like that. And we lost one-fifth of our population to disease over the course of a few years. What would that do to our economy? Hmm. That was solved and overshadowed by, one, economies across the world weren't that big of a, weren't that huge. And two, we got into a massive world war right about the same time, so it was overshadowed. So even though tens of millions of people died from War. Spanish influenza, oh. it was overshadowed by the three or four million, I don't remember the numbers, that died in World War One. Right. I guess when you ask the the question as, you know, how would that impact the economy, 
I guess we don't then because the economy would be smaller because it'd be less participants. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, we've built up so much infrastructure to support an economy of a certain size. And I guess the fact that that infrastructure has become so costly and fragile that yeah, we're, we're more susceptible now today because yeah, because the, that fragility is then amplified when our population shows its fragility. So I'm looking around the room we're in right now and wondering, is there any community, any city in the United States that has a recent experience with massive population loss? <laughs> and, um, As a Detroiter, I might have some Detroit memorabilia hanging around. There, there's, we are literally in a room that is orange, white, and maybe blue. blue. Yeah. Uh I see a lion, I see a tiger, probably not going to murder you, and a whole bunch of uh, white people being very excited. What? Uh, Detroit. Yeah. What? Well, there we go. There we go. There's an example. What, what happened when Detroit lost its its population? How did they solve the problem of the, the suburbs? Mm. What What left first? What left first? When, when the mid- economy collapsed and people mm-hmm. started going, what did they have to stop first? Yeah. Or how did they? How did Detroit re- react? Yeah. So infrastructure costs uh, were out. Yeah. Water to neighborhoods. Yeah, they were they were outpacing anything that the city could keep up with, and this was really kind of the the inner ring suburbs uh, within Detroit proper, right? Like this isn't the, yeah, this isn't the, uh, the, the, the suburbs that are outside of Detroit proper that make up the Detroit metro area because most of those suburbs are pretty well to do and they have wealthy folks with a lot of political clout and they can make things work and borrow from the state as they need to, or ensure that the state doesn't uh, create this uh, emergency manager system in their, in their community. But the emergency manager system happened in Detroit and a lot of unpopular decisions were made. But I mean, those were tough, unpopular decisions that I don't think anybody, even well-intentioned, would have so been uh, able to, to solve. What happened to the neighborhoods outside of Detroit? Outside so, of the downtown Detroit area? Yeah, they became ghost towns and they're slowly like creeping back through like, I mean, community gardening was one of these kind of like gem uh reactions to it right it was the one thing that people could reclaim space in their community and try to make something good happen out of it besides these decrepit buildings that had been standing there forever the city finally mowed down all these things and kind of like these mass uh, demos and um, all that were left were these overgrown grass fields and people were like damn this is really taking down the the, the character of our neighborhood falls from the sky for free there yeah, um, and there's just not many people know of all that fresh water all around Michigan that gives it its mitten shape. Well, we know about it. <laughs> we want it. We're working on a canal right now. <laughs> a little straw. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Pipelines. If we can do pipelines for peak oil, we can do pipelines for peak water. Um, and what happened to the families that abandoned their houses? So the first families sold. Hmm. Yeah, I don't 
you don't hear the the individual stories much in in the things that I've been reading and following, but um, I'm sure there's a book that I'll get to eventually uh, by an author who was once a, a very well uh, respected Detroit Press um, uh, journalist, and so I'm sure that I'll eventually get to his book where I think he does bring in a lot of personal stories, but unfortunately I'm not that familiar with them. To be continued. Yeah, to be continued. But this is the same thing about saving for retirement. Trying to save for the long, for those black swan events. So this is a place where we know that it is really likely to happen. And when it happens, it's not like someone driving into a farmer's market and five, ten people die. We're talking about a country of 300 plus million people suddenly being approached in different degrees with poverty, with having to move, with having to uproot themselves, go across. And this is maybe a story of human human life. We've always moved. Mm-hmm. But it's also a story of, of we've in, never invested in place more in human history. Like, we used to bulldoze Rome every 10 years and rebuild. You know, like, oh, this neighborhood, we're going to rebuild it. Because it was always something better. It was always doing that. But Build on top of the ruins. Yeah. And that's where you get your building blocks, right? Yeah. Well, and Duane's, uh Andres Duane, he, uh, he says that, you know, um, decay is beautiful. It's romantic. It's, it's not the decay of the city that is the city's problem. It's it's more cultural and political. Yeah, is it just inevitable? And yeah. if it's inevitable, are we planning for it? Or do yeah. we just hold our breath? It's interesting. The, his quote that's in my mind is, is interesting in the respect that, yeah, does just does the aesthetic and the, the physical uh, cleanliness and the monotony of what uh, of what once existed as it decays a little unevenly and a little complex does that just add complexity but I guess there's deeper systems that we need to take care of in order to make sure that that's not our downfall so that's the end of nihilist hour <laughs> Moving on beyond the dispersal, the dispersed suburbs. That's a despairing dispersed. We can try. We'll probably get it wrong again somehow, but we can we can try to do better. Signing off.
designed our chairs to be uncomfortable after 40 minutes anyways. So. I love that Vancouver used a giant bingo style ball machine to randomly pick the order of the candidates on the election ballot. Bonus, the candidates reaction for the top of the list. I've been Ryan Wozniak. This is Main Street Mesa.